Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Nature's Take, a new series from Nature. Over the years, we often get requests for us to dive deeper into topics. In other words, analysis of the topics in science that matter to you. Well, we've heard you, and that is what we're hoping to do with Nature's Take. In each episode, we are going to pull in some of nature's finest into one room and take on a big topic and see where the discussion leads us. For the first episode, we're talking about preprints. Now, these pre-peer review open access articles have become much more common during the pandemic, sometimes for better or worse. Nature as well has been increasingly using them in our reporting, and that has even led to emails from people being critical of our use of them. Regardless, they've become an integral part of scientific publishing, but they certainly have their pros and cons. To get into this and more, I've gathered three extremely knowledgeable guests here with me from across Nature. First up, I've got Essa Masood, Nature's Editorials Editor. Hey, hi Nick. Next, familiar voice from the podcast, Lizzie Gibney. Hiya, I'm Lizzie and I write about physics for Nature. And last but not least, Manuscript Editor and Immunologist, Zoltan Ferhavari. Hi Nick, thanks for inviting me. And of course, I'm your host, Nick Petrichow. Thank you all for joining me and being my guinea pigs in this new show. Now, preprints, as I mentioned, have had a bit of a surge during the pandemic, But they aren't anything new. In physics, for example, they've been around for a long time. Yeah, they've been around since, I think it was 1991. I did look that up because I thought it was just forever. (laughs) But it turns out it's just a really long time ago. And they grew a lot. So I think it was quite steady for a long time. And then it went through the roof. And I would say most physicists probably publish on the archive. So in our field, it's very, very common. But I understand that it's not that common in other fields. And the archive, when you say that, that's the sort of main repository of these preprints. Yeah, exactly. It's massive, about two million papers there now. Certainly in physics and maths and computer science, where it started all those years ago, it's very much standard. But since then, we've had new repositories across pretty much every discipline. It's just really becoming mainstream, I'd say. How do you think it has changed? I mean, what I've certainly found is that initially there was almost an expectation that preprints might actually even change science publishing in a huge way. And, you know, partly because the facility now exists for the community to be able to publish what they want to do and then to sort of have this instant back pocket access to all the sort of top experts to quickly dive in and sort of help with their findings. And then, of course, that then may lead to other things. I I don't necessarily know to what extent that may or may not happen. But I think in terms of the way that we do our jobs... 
as science editors and science reporters, it pretty much has changed things. And I think there's a lot less wariness than there used to be. Certainly as a reporter, I remember when I first started here, which was coming up to nine years ago, I think, we needed kind of special permission to write about something from the archive, which, you know, you can understand. It's not peer-reviewed. But nowadays... Obviously, we make it really clear when a paper we're covering is not peer-reviewed, but we don't need to get a special tick box anywhere that, that lets us do that. You know, it's just, it's it's standard. And Zoltan, as sort of a person who receives papers from authors trying to get their work out there, how have preprints sort of changed your workflow, or have they? So, speaking from a biological perspective, for whatever reason, biologists have been a lot more reticent about using preprints. The equivalent to archive is bioarchive for the biological sciences and, of course, medarchive as well. Um, they appeared in 2013, so they've been around for a while. So they've been on the landscape for a while. But honestly, I knew very few people who would use them, just purely anecdotally. And COVID basically changed everything because many of the publishers, like ourselves, were basically mandating that all COVID stuff needs to go on there. And then I think that just naturally reduced the bar for people working in other areas of biology weren't necessarily COVID related for them to also start putting their stuff onto bioarchive or medarchive. In terms of how it's changed my job, I'd be lying if I said I used it a hell of a lot. If I get time, you know, I'm lucky if I get time to look at actual papers that are submitted to us. But if I do get time, I, I dip into it occasionally. But it's such a morass of stuff that it's, it's where you start in a way. Let's say a paper comes in, is submitted to Nature, I say the authors are making some exceptionally grand and bold claims about their paper. Dare I say the expression paradigm shift, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> this will change the face of science as we know it kind of thing. I say, all right, let's 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 just have a little peek at bioarchive or medarchive. See if it's on there and see if there's been much engagement from the community. So I'll go on. You know, you can comment on it. You can see the number of downloads. You can get all metric stats and so on on it. So occasionally if I see a paper that's on there and it's done really well, it's got a lot of attention then I think, well, maybe there's something in it. And we should say here that although in general the number of submissions from biologists to preprints is certainly much lower than, say, physicists, there are some fields within biology that are, and have been for some time, very active on preprint servers. So, as ever, not one size fits all. But thinking again more generally... One thing that you mentioned there is this idea, this this sort of pre-peer review for preprint where you see what scientists think before publication. So that could be taken as one kind of positive. What are some of the other positives of preprints? I think particularly if you might be in the sort of what might be regarded as kind of middle tier or middle experienced researcher, so you're not highly experienced, maybe you're not really early career. And so it's, it's a good place. I mean, ordinarily, when you're before publishing, you would send your material to a sort of brains trust, just to kind of get a bit of a feel for what other people think prior to submission often. And so it really helps in that sense. And you'll discover people you wouldn't have thought existed at that time. So I think that's certainly a sort of a big plus. Mm, and, and Lizzie, I guess with physics, it's basically the done thing to put it on archive first. So 
Uh, what are the sort of positives people have seen since that has been happening since the 1990s? Well, you can stake a claim. So if there's some discovery, you put it on the archive, then you are the one who made it first. And often there are a lot of different teams who are racing towards the same kind of findings. It's also good for making rebuttals or challenging findings. People might remember a few years ago as this BICEP2 discovery, or they thought at the time it was a discovery of this like twisted light that revealed gravitational waves from the early universe. And it turned out that actually it was um, a dust pattern in the sky that they were seeing instead and you know that was a huge announcement in the press absolutely everywhere in nature too of course and very quickly within I think a couple of weeks papers that cumulatively said that the finding was not real and that was through the archive you know that it was able to respond that quickly that people were able to put their findings out there so I think that's also this rapid response is something it's really good for. And also this rapid response, governments around the world were eagerly trying to get any information they could about COVID when this first happened, but that was also not without its dangers. You're probably all familiar with the ivermectin scandal. These were preprint papers that basically went viral, and this sort of information that wasn't accurate, as it turned out, was out in the world. I I guess I'm just wondering, like, what are the other sort of risks with these preprints? So I know that, in a sense, we're talking in the context of preprints, but... In a way, the idea that a government or a lab can issue its findings prior to sort of formal peer-reviewed publication, and that in its own way has probably existed since the year zero. I think the interesting thing is that the pandemic has sort of coincided with this sort of hyper-viral technological ability to move things quickly. But, you know, even in, if we take previous infectious disease outbreaks prior to where we are now, there's been a requirement, both by policymakers, by you know, ourselves in the press and, and elsewhere, for fast information. And so researchers have had to find other ways of getting that information out. I guess it's just that well, part of the difference is the scale. The scale is just so huge. So, you know, again, in, in that sense, it isn't the phenomenon necessarily, I, I would say, probably isn't kind of like 100% new. It puts a lot of responsibility on journalists and, you know, we're okay with that. We have very close ties with the research community and I'm aware that if I report on a preprint paper, then I'm essentially doing my own little version of peer review before I write about it. But in the case of ivermectin and a lot of publications around the world, that didn't happen. So that's definitely a big risk of preprints is that some publications, some news outlets don't distinguish between a preprint and a published paper. That was the question I was going to actually ask you you guys. I, th- I think things have certainly got better, but I did notice certainly in the early part of the pandemic, I'd be reading something and I thought, this is kind of interesting. And then I looked for the paper on PubMed or whatever to find it and couldn't find it. Turns out it was being reported just from a preprint. Most news outlets now have got better at that and they'll flag it up and they'll put little asterisks on it and they'll say you know what it means to be a preprint that's not being peer-reviewed but i think in the early days it's a bit of a wild west thing in fact the bbc reported an article that i had under review but was on a preprint and didn't say it wasn't a preprint and i actually thought the guy who was with us who's publishing his paper with us who having it reviewed had, had got scooped by another lab because i thought <laughs> blimey this stuff that the bbc's talking about sounds exactly like the stuff that we've got on peer review and i got really worried and lo and behold i found it on by archive but the BBC had reported on it without saying it was a preprint. So, And that is a very common story throughout the pandemic, right? Not least because, as I think Essan said earlier, lots of publishers decided to start mandating data and research be released on preprints, even when it was submitted to journals for publishing, including Nature. So when the pandemic raised its ugly head, we realised basically, you know, here's this problem of global importance. I think it was our responsibility as a publisher 
to disseminate any information that we've got as soon as possible and not hold up stuff behind paywalls and peer review and that which can take months and months and months so we were highly supportive of that it was also just responding to the fact that pretty much anyone in this field was just needing to get their information out fast and it was a recognition from us and i think from i would say pretty much every other publisher that we need to work with the flow and just understand that that's a phenomenon and a behavior that's happening and we need to recognize it appreciate it accept it work with it because the researchers themselves were working at just incredible pace weren't they so it would just mm. seem crazy to then put a, something slowing the system in the way mm. of getting that out to the world but I think, yeah, nature has been behind preprints for a while and people don't know that. I think like a lot of time when we come to write about a preprint, people sometimes worry that they won't be able to still publish their paper in somewhere like nature. And that's just not the case. And so, you know, nature is pro preprint, as you've sort of said. But something Zoltan said earlier about reading in the BBC, not necessarily knowing that something was a preprint rather than a conventional paper it just makes me wonder how is it best that we actually communicate that with our audience on the podcast for example we'll say this hasn't been peer-reviewed yet and I think maybe that means something to the nature audience but more generally how is best to communicate that a preprint is something different yeah I think as you say for our audience they probably do have a sense of what peer review is but for a lot of people peer review I think I hope just means a kind of rubber stamp that this has been vetted by other scientists I think a lot of people get that idea and actually on the flip side some people don't give too much credence in it I think a lot of people assume that if it's peer reviewed that's it that means it's 100% true there's no disagreement in the community and actually, you know, if you see the reviews themselves, which now, you know, we and others are making open, you see that the comments are a lot more nuanced than just, you know, a big gold star for this paper. This is all correct. So, yes, I think people maybe don't quite get the difference between a preprint and a published paper. But actually, the difference, this might be controversial, is not as big as some people think. I think it's worth adding, though, that it's not equivalent to some keyboard warrior knocking out something in their basement. There is actually a level of curation and moderation that goes on on preprints. Also, other authors on archive have to kind of like sign off on you and say that this they're guy's legit. They're not a, they're not a total loon. Mm. Something similar works in med archive and, and bio archive. There is a quality check even for a preprint. And so thinking about ivermectin, other things that have happened with preprints where it's gone kind of wrong, is there a risk that these types of articles may damage trust in science? Yeah, I think there probably is because people obviously don't understand the full difference between a preprint and a published paper. But at the same time, there are so many instances where there's been a big blowout publication in nature huge finding and it's turned out not to be real and that's been through peer review so that does also happen and i think to some extent that damages people's opinions of, of science and trust in science but what we really need to be working on is this idea that science is not this done and dusted certain process as it's often portrayed to be it's a constant work in progress and we're never quite sure it's all about uncertainty and so in an ideal world we'll just help in whatever articles we're writing whether about preprints whether about publications we'll help to kind of push that message and show science as it really is rather than this kind of fairy tale version and I think the more we can do to just expand on this idea that we're always trying to approximate to the truth and we often get to it, but it's a journey, it's a process, we're on the way. 
and preprints are sort of part of that. I don't think at the moment preprints quite get communicated in that way, and I think that's a bit of a stretch to say that's yeah, that's where it's at. But I think if we could do that somehow, if the narrative could be changed, I think that'd be really powerful. Yeah, the other thing though I'm thinking about preprints is, especially during the pandemic, there were so many preprints. That it was difficult to find what was good and what was not, and sometimes you might be like, "Oh, it's in this journal. I trust that journal," or something like that. How difficult is it to sort of sift through them all and find the sort of wheat from the chaff? It's really, really hard. I tend to, I mean. If there is a lab that has a good history in a particular field, you're obviously more likely to trust results coming out of that lab. So that's that's one way. In general, in terms of sifting down that huge number, I just have loads of alerts set up, really. So the thing I find it really useful for is, say, there's an experiment that you hear about, you know, maybe you get press release saying there's an experiment, they've got a really big goal that sounds quite far-fetched but incredible. So then you just put all the keywords in and you set up your search and then whenever they finally achieve that, you get pinged. So that's a way that I do it is kind of, use it as a resource for things that I'm semi expecting to see already that you're waiting for and then you can go you know you get there first because of course the scooping others is not just for scientists it's also for journalists but yeah it is if if you just and I've it's very rare that I have days this quiet but I have before just gone to the archive and gone like Ooh, what's there today? And I can tell you don't get very far with that uh, that <laughs> policy. And on the flip side, I guess, the scientific community has long been pushing for sort of open access, more transparency. Is this kind of a move towards that? I would say so to an extent, although it hasn't, as I say, hasn't been fully embraced, particularly in the biological sciences. I think it's probably is the easiest way of doing it because, you know, you've written this paper, it hasn't had any input. You can put that in the repository and you've adhered to open access requirements. And the beauty of it as well is then you have this other version that eventually comes out in a journal and you can see the value add and what's happened to it throughout that process. And you can avoid all of the hoops and things you've got to jump through in order to make your paper open access just by putting your original paper in a repository. So I think in that way, it's definitely helped to push open access. I mean, open access is coming clearly. It's, it's going to be, it'll be really variable depending on, you know, which part of the world we're in, what disciplines, what journals, but the momentum is, is clearly there. I think in, t- in terms of preprint uptake from different groups of disciplines or different disciplines, I do wonder, I mean, I'd be interested you know, what Lizzie and Zoltan you think is, I do wonder to what extent it's reflected by the level of collegiality and competitiveness. Physicists are a special breed in that in in that regard, actually. But it's not always collegiality, though, is it? As I say, it's often staking your claim. It's saying actually, this yeah. paper someone else has written is complete rubbish. And maybe particularly if you're sort of relatively new in a field and you haven't got that sort of big name kudos in lights, and you do want to, you know, make sure that. It's a bit like, you know, sending your IP in an envelope, which is how people used to do. I mean, it has the potential to be really democratising like that, doesn't it? You don't have to have some big lab name behind you. You don't have to be a big professor, which, you know, we'd like to say that that isn't how you end up with your paper in a big journal. But, you know, there's so many subtle things that interplay in order to get there. And, and your network in science plays a huge role. And in theory, you could put your paper, it might be groundbreaking, and you put it on a preprint server and that's the way it gets out there. And it has happened in the past, right? There's the famous case with the per- Perelman, Grigori Perelman. It's kind of a famous story. So the Poincaré conjecture, you, you know that, yeah, right? And there's this guy, Grigori Perelman, rather an eccentric chap by the sounds of it. He'd solved it, put the proof up on archive, was not interested in publishing in any official journal, just said, look, it's, it's on archive, it's there. 
make of it what you will. I think maybe mathematics is a special case because you know you you don't need technology, you don't need lots of money to to prove something. You can just work your way through his proof to see if it's correct or not. So that was never published anyway. It just exists solely on archive. They offered the Fields Medal to him and some other Millennium Prize, which he he declined because he's as I say an eccentric chap. But it shows, you know, some people in some fields, you don't you don't actually need to go the, the full publication route. You know, archive might be sufficient. It's not going to work in biology or molecular biology or something, it's, or lab-based science. That's never going to wash, really, I don't think. But for mathematics, it seems eminently feasible. I mean, to throw out then a very controversial question, do we need journals and things like that? Can we just throw everything on the archive and then science is open and there for everyone? Well, I mean, you know, so, I mean certainly within the the sort of foundations of open access publishing, you know, that was one of the ambitions and it remains definitely one of the ambitions you know, for a subsect of the community. I'm not going to be a turkey and vote for Christmas on this one. So I do think we still need the journals. I know the guy who started archives, Paul Ginsparg, I think he suggested it as a way to just bypass the whole standard publication route and we just go with archive and that's it. Yeah, I mean, the archive's been around for, for so long, but, it, you know, physics journals still exist. So there's clearly something happening there. I would say, as someone who reads a lot of papers as a non-expert, you can tell when it's been, you know, well edited mm. and when it's in a journal. It's just so much more palatable because, of course, when you're writing a preprint, you're writing directly to your peers. You're probably writing to your rival. <laughs> so it's very specific what you put in and the level you're pitching at, which is very, very different in a journal publication. Lizzie, make me feel good about myself as an editor then. So when you read a preprint, you just to clarify this for the record, you say it's a lot easier to read the final published version, let's say in Nature, as opposed to the preprint. So that, that step of peer review and editorial interaction you do think improves the manuscript yeah definitely okay. i mean right. especially that's, that's good to know <laughs> and the more the more it's worth repeating <laughs> the more general the journal the more that is the case okay. you know if, if it's in a specific astronomy journal then maybe it doesn't change that much but if it's going to be published in nature then the whole idea is any other scientist needs to be able to read it and so yeah it usually gets quite an overhaul i'm not sure whether i can understand all physics papers in nature but i take your what point what are you talking about <laughs> So then as a reporter or as an editor, like, are you then a bit more wary when something's in a preprint? I will do my own version peer review. I'll kind of look at who they reference in the paper, especially if those references are to papers that disagreed with them in the past. I'll go to their authors and I'll say, hey, and you know, the fact that it's on the preprint server already means you can just share it widely and ask as many people as you want for their thoughts on it. So, And they have as much time as they want to pour over it. So a huge dollop of caution, because I, of course, myself cannot look at that and say, oh, hey, they've clearly fiddled with their stats here or something. I'm not that level of expert, but you just got to try and send it to the right people who would know. I, I, I would just say, so let's imagine, you know, I'm going to make a prediction now. And of course, you know, journalists making predictions, you always get them wrong, but it's, so they're a bit of fun. So if we imagine a world, let's say 50 or 100 years from now, where there weren't journals and it was, you know, some sort of system where... There was total democratization of publishing a very flat structure. I would still think that within that system, something would need to emerge where you have, I wouldn't call it hierarchy, but some sort of validation or some way of knowing, you know, what is it that I should be reading? Why should I be reading this? Because as, as, you, as Lizzie, as you said, I mean, there is, there's just the potential to drown there's too in, the, much. in the material. And so even if we didn't have what the present sort of system of journal publishing and that all got wiped away, you know, for some reason, I think something would need to emerge that would be a sort of triaging type system or some way of 
encouraging us or explaining that, no, this is what you need to be reading. Here's our recommendations. Here's what we think you should be, that kind of editorial curation. So it, maybe it'll come back, you know, and it might be a different business model to the one that exists. But the principle, I think, might still be there, would be there. It's a uh, prediction. It's dangerous. <laughs> well, predict away, like, with that in mind, what do we think the sort of future is of preprints? They've obviously had a huge surge during the pandemic. Is that going to wane? What's going to happen? Well, I mean, I think clearly the pace of publishing COVID-related stuff is slowing down. I mean, it was completely unprecedented. I mean, I think up until recently, like HIV was the most studied disease in the world. I think it's going to get overtaken by COVID very shortly, just in terms of the number of publications on it. You know, HIV has been around for 40 years. COVID has been around, what, two and a half years. So that is really a weird upside down setup. I do think it has changed the landscape, though. So I do think people will be engaging with preprints more and more. So the, the bar for people being willing to submit to preprints has come down, definitely. So I, I think they're here, here to stay. And there's, we've just talked about a couple of them at the moment, but there are dozens and dozens of, of preprints catering to every single little niche area and a few other big ones as well. So I think they're here to stay and they'll grow as long as they get funded, right? Because they're not you kind of assume they just go on in the background, but actually I, I was reading somewhere it costs about a million dollars to run every oh. year, a million dollars to keep archive going, and that's just working on volunteers, you know, working for free. All the moderators work for free, but all the overheads for everything, maintaining the servers and what have you. So they are expensive, for sure. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, but I think that's probably all we've got time for. Nature's Take will return, and our next topic will be the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and where science fits into that. But for now, all that's left to say is thank you all for joining me. Thank you thank very you. much. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. <laughs> thank you all. I've been Nick Petrichow. See you all next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.